Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to hear is part of the Voices of Faith series for JLF Brave New World, presented by the Kamini and Vindi Banga Family Trust. The Faith and Philosophy of Zoroastrianism. Noshir Dadravala and Sharnaz Kama in conversation with Dinyar Patel. Uh, what I will do is give a very brief overview of the history of, of the religion uh, before we get into question and answers. Uh, now, one of the great difficulties when uh, studying the history of Zoroastrianism is just a lack of sources. Uh, for much of its history, Zoroastrianism has been an oral tradition. Uh, a lot of sources have been lost over the, the centuries. Uh, and due to limited archaeological work in the region where Zoroastrianism uh, you know, originally thrived, um, that means a lot of sources probably have, have not you know, come to light as yet. I mean, our story can really change depending on how archaeological work uh, develops. Uh, and so consequently, you know, the, you know, some of the, the, the most critical information uh, is, is conjecture. I mean, we don't know precisely when or where Zarathustra was alive. I mean, uh, the Greeks thought that he was alive 6,000 years before Plato. It's probably more likely, um, as the video pointed out, that he was alive sometime uh, in the mid second millennium uh, BC, somewhere in Central Asia. The Zoroastrian religious corpus itself uh, is in many different languages. Uh, you have in, in Old Avistan, uh, the Gathas, which are commonly believed to be Zoroaster's own words, uh, and the, the Yasna Haptangaiti. Uh, but then you also have uh, you know, sources that, were, that are in Young and Avestan, uh, Old and Middle Persian, uh, and still more in, in what we call Modern Persian and Gujarati. Uh, and again, the translations of a lot of these texts are contested. If you look at the Gathas, uh, the translations differ quite dramatically uh, by, by the, the individual who's translated it. Um, now, we know that by the time of the Archimedean Empire, uh, specifically with Darius I, uh, Zoroastrianism had become closely entwined uh, within the structure of the, of, uh, you know, the state uh, in, in, uh, in Persia. Uh, it became further entrenched in the, in the, the Parthian and the Sasanian empires. Um, the Sasanian Empire was uh, extant from 224 AD to 651. Uh, and, you know, through Persian state power and through the Silk Road and through mercantile connections, uh, Zoroastrianism traveled to places like India, uh, Central Asia, China, and parts of the Roman Empire as well. The Arab invasion of, of Iran, uh, and particularly after what happened after the Battle of Nehavan in, in 642, uh, brought about the end of, of this period. Uh, but it's important to remember that the, you know, the conquest of Iran and the Islamization of Iran uh, took a very, very long time uh, uh, you know, to, to, to take part. So, I mean, the conquest of Iran and Transoxiana took around nine decades, and then Islamization of Iran itself took perhaps another six centuries, according to one scholar. Uh, so Zoroastrianism did not proceed in Iran in one fell swoop. Uh, rather, there was a very long period of interaction between Islam and uh, Zoroastrianism, which lasted until relatively recently. And then, of course, that particular dynamic in Iran uh, led to some Zoroastrians going to India. And I'll just end with this uh, you know, interesting uh, 
you know, a bit of information which shows you again how, uh, you know, what we know about Zoroastrianism can oftentimes be quite surprising. So, I mean, we, we you know, we commonly believe Zoroastrians to arrive on, in Indian shores as, you know, what we now call Parsis, beginning from the 8th to the 10th century AD, specifically in Gujarat. Uh, but actually, the, the earliest surviving reference we have towards Zoroastrians in India uh, is not in Gujarat. It's rather from Kerala. Uh, it's from a copper plate in Kola uh, in Kerala, dating from the late 19th century. Uh, so, you know, with that, uh, I will transition to, uh, you know, the rest of, of today's discussion where we'll, we'll be asking each other some questions in order to get a discussion going on elements of Zoroastrianism. Uh, so let me begin with a question for Noshir Dadarawala. If you can tell us a little bit about Zarathustra and his, his life. Sure. Thank you, uh, Adinyar. Uh, first of all, this name, Zarathustra. Uh, people, it's quite a tongue twister for non-Zoroastrians. So, I mean, uh, the Greeks refer to him as Zoroaster. But the Avesta name is Zarathustra. Uh, that is the actual name. And it has been variously translated as driver of camels, possessor of camels. But if you look at it carefully, the word Zara is golden is to shine and tra is the star so therefore his name is translated as shining golden star uh, as Dinya rightly said uh, we don't know when exactly he was born uh, modern scholars put him anywhere around 1500 BC they say he was born in a city called Rai but this is based upon Pahlavi text uh, uh, and if you look it's barely, barely six, 60 kilometers away from the city of capital city of Tehran. There are some who believe that he was born somewhere in bulk, uh, which is modern day Afghanistan. Many believe he was born somewhere near the Russian steppes. Uh, when he was born, where he was born remains a mystery. But the fact remains that he did walk on planet Earth because his message is there with us. And his message is loud and clear songs. Just as we have the Gita, which is the songs, we have the Gatha, which is song. These are songs of Zarathustra in his own words. These are poetic philosophy. And what from the Pahlavi text is that when he was about the age of 30, there are stories of miracles around the time of his birth that, I mean, there were evil sorcerers who tried to end his life and there were several attempts on his life, etc. Uh, that's all part of the myth uh, that we find in the packs. But the more important part is that he leaves his father's house at the age of 30 in search of the truth. And the Pahlavi text says that he meditated on the truths of nature for a period of 10 years, a mountain called Mount Ushidarena. It was a mountain called Ushidarena, which we geographically don't know where it exists. But that's where he meditated for 10 years. And it is said that he received his first vision. This is according to the Zarthushname, which is part of the Dinkad, which is a century Pahlavi text, that it happened to be the month of Ardibesht, which is the current month of Ardibesht now, also as per the Shenshai calendar on Roj Detmeher. And it said when he had his first vision of Aura Mazda, it's a pertinent question to Ahura Mazda. This is what it is documented in Zarathushnama, where Zarathustra asked the Lord of Wisdom, Ahura Mazda, because that's what Ahura Mazda means, the Lord of Wisdom. Uh, we are essentially worshippers of wisdom. 
who is the person among all other world? And it seems from the Zatushnama that Ahura Mazda had answered to this. And in this answer, you find encapsulated the entire philosophy of Zarathustra. Ahura Mazda says, the best person is one who walks on the path of Asha. Asha is a, a Western term, which is variously translated as truth, righteous conduct, and living a life in harmony with nature. Then Ahura Mazda, he or she who is charitable, charitable in thought, word, and deed, who reveres the fire, who reveres the waters, who reveres the vegetation, and who respects even or takes care of animals. Now you can see that this entire concept of how a Zoroastrian should be living his or her life is in this very first question that Zarathustra seems to have asked Ahura Mazda. It is said that after this, uh, there was a little conference that he, the court of Ahura Mazda, this is how it has been graphically described Zarathushnama and where all the Amesha spenders, the remaining six Amesha spenders, Baman, Ardibe, Sharevar, Asmandar, Khordad, Amardad, these are seen as guardians of the good creations of Ahura Mazda. So Baman, for example, is the protector of animals. Ardibesh presides over fire. Sharevar presides over metals and minerals. Aspandad is a female deity which presides over earth. Khordad over the waters. Amardad over vegetation. So you can see all the good creation of Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda has his energies looking after that. But the Amesha spenders have also to be looked at from an ethical perspective. And I'll just cover a little bit of that and then I will complete my answer to this. That essentially, Bhaman is in Avesta referred to as Vahumana, which is the good mind. Ardibesh is Asha Bahishta, or the best truth or best righteous. Asha Bahishta is about truth. Sharevar is about strength, Shatravairya. Aspanda is about humility and piety. Khordad is Havratat, which is about perfection. And Amardad is about eternity or lifelong. Now, these are the concepts that we have to imbibe as Zoroastrians in our day-to-day -day life. And this is so important. As human beings, in our day-to-day life, the first concept is Aura Mazda. Whatever you do, you do it in Aura Mazda's name and you dedicate the results to Aura Mazda. Good, bad, whatever happens, you do your duty in the name of Aura Mazda dedicated to him. You will do it using Baman, which is your good mind. You will do it again with Ardibesh, which is truth, righteous conduct. And this in turn will lead you to Sharevar, which is strength. It will give you strength. But the strength must be combined with uh, Aspandarmat, which is about humility and piety, which will give you Khordad, which is perfection, and which you will have for immortality, that is Amardad. That in sense is what Zarathustra was class. Daniel. Thank you. So le uh, let me ask one question uh, for Shernas. Um, how is an ancient tradition like Zoroastrianism relevant for today? I think Noshir has touched a little bit upon this, but I think what is most important for uh, me to convey to an audience like this is a Bronze Age religions or faith or cultures concerned with today's issue of ecology. Uh, 
definitely geography creates helps create history as well as philosophy and the whole idea of a cold desert where water and fire create warmth and life uh, is reflected in the word we have for creation which is spenta creation spenta means holy at one level but it also means bounteous and uh, of course we have little legends that which the greeks have also corroborated that zarathustra was the only infant who laughed rather than cried when he was born because he was so happy to come to this beautiful world of asha the point which we have over here is that each one of us is a hamkar or a co-worker a fellow worker with the lord of light and wisdom aura mazda and man is a part of the seven creations which nosher has talked about and therefore he has to live in harmony with all of them it is not that man has to govern creation and that is completely out of sync with the idea of harmony and the oneness of all creation so the other very interesting thing is that zoroastrianism speaks at that time of pollution of waste and of greed and interestingly with using psychology it also speaks of doubt as opposed to spenta menu we have as we heard in the little uh, in the little video uh, spenta menu spirit of truth we have angre menu or ariman who is negativity today we are looking at negativity doubt pollution waste all these things and we are the people responsible to recreate harmony to bring about the uh, res the uh, restoration of the world zoroastrianism doesn't end with an apocalypse it ends with a perfected world so i think that's the positive thrust of this faith and there's a very important feature in our faith which is the joy in life just as zarathustra laughed we have to bring joy to life and the only way you can bring joy to life is through action positive action and i'm quoting from the gathas i have taught that action not inaction higher stands and a later text the vendidat speaks about he who sows corn sows righteousness now so we have to actively participate to protect this oikos this beautiful world we live in and bring about prashokareti but all this is theory how do we as uh, practicing zoroastrians learn about this i think we learn it from childhood in a very osmotic process as a child you are told by your parent grandparent don't pluck a flower at night it is sleeping and that is something which we all have followed all our lives and the second thing is that we all are crazy about dogs which any parsi friend would know anybody who's a, who has a parsi friend would know but it is a very ancient tradition because we put aside the first morsel without eating it we put aside the first untasted morsel as what we call the morsel for the dog or the kutrano book which is a rivaj which is a tradition which is to thank the dog who was our protector and friend on the steppes of central asia thousands of years ago so this is the osmotic way in which we have a living ecology in our faith that is my first point the second point is about choice and again i think that it's very relevant to our today because everybody wants freedom everybody wants choice but we also have to remember that choice implies responsibility the gathas again this is yashna 32 30.2 it says year with your years this is zarathustra in his songs talking uh year with your years the highest truths i preach 
and with illumined minds weigh them with care before you choose which of the two paths you will tread man to man each to each close quotes now what do i mean by choice in zoroastrianism the soul is called the ruwan it's spelled with a u u r v a n but it actually means the chooser the path of righteousness asha or the path of druj negation are both available you have to choose the path you want to tread again how does orality teach this to us we choose to join the faith at our naujot when we put on the sacred vaumanik vastra or the sadra and the kasti uh we bind the sacred thread together at the word shothenanam to act you may have heard that word repeated in the one of the ceremonies you saw over there we are given the choice both girls and boys are given the choice at marriage do you choose to marry pasande kadam and of course you have hilarious stories about the groom or the bride jumping off the stage and saying no pasande kadam i don't choose to marry so and so but finally all our choices in life bring us to the chinvat pareto or the bridge of choice the bridge of judgment is the bridge about the choices you have made in this life if you have chosen wisely as the gathas guide you to you have chosen the positive mentality and you will therefore act with responsibility in zoroastrianism there is no savior to take away your sins there is no a uh, a uh, cycle of reincarnation by which you work out your karma this is the one life you have live it well live it with joy and most important give happiness to others and that's a little phrase we always use ushtate happiness unto you and that is the concept with which we live uh just as zarathustra laughed when he was born all of us uh we and we we pray with joy we don't pray cringing before god we don't even have to kneel before god we stand with our hands upheld and that is how the gathas start with hands upheld i speak to you our amazda so we are to be part of this creation positive creation and we our prayers are more discussions affirmations rather than supplication so this is the way i feel that the religion is very relevant even today thank you dinya thank you very much so i'll i'll just build on on the comments about nosher and chernas men, uh, mentioned to 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 bring up an important point i mean when we when we look at religion uh, whenever we study religion we must remember that uh, religious practice and religious belief changes dramatically over time right and so you know any religion which is you know 3000 to 3500 years old uh dramatic change has taken place as it has within hinduism islam christianity whatever religion you want to look at um but you know earlier today i was just thinking through some things that seem relatively constant within the zoroastrian tradition and and there are a few things i mean for one uh you know god ahura mazda is is fundamentally good uh he is not responsible for for evil uh in in this world so i mean that's something that distinguishes rationalism uh quite a bit from many other religions i mean god could potentially be uh not omnipotent in in that particular interpretation that was subject to a great amount of debate in the early islamic era uh to give one example uh humans are agents of course uh so as shanas mentioned I mean, we are, we are humans we are we are meant to uh help god achieve good and you know in our modern society that of course can sometimes seem a little difficult to believe but that is you know a part of our religion and uh, you know i think it it really helps us kind of understand what our relationship with with god is like uh 
Um, thirdly, a uh, certain you know, a certain degree of importance has been given to fire in ritual practice, uh, but other elements have also been held uh, to be sacred. Uh, fourthly, particular ideas have held relatively constant. The importance of things like charity. Uh, you see charity being an important thing throughout Zoroastrian history. So modern day Parsi philanthropy is not something relatively unique or different. Uh, the importance of truth or order or righteousness, uh, Asha, uh, and ritual purity. I mean, this is something which Zoroastrianism has in, in, in uh, you know, similarity with Hinduism or, or you know, Shia Islam, for example. Uh, and lastly, the, the Zoroastrian tradition um, embraces a certain joyousness in life. And this is something that Shernaz mentioned. Uh, you know, a certain happiness and, and joy, uh, joyousness of, of life is important. Uh, you know, in, in early European accounts that we have of uh, Zoroastrians, whether in India or Iran, there are some travel writers who've talked about how the Zoroastrians were the ones who had a penchant for festive eating and, and drinking and merrymaking. Uh, and it, it's, it's very evident today. I mean, you know, a distinct type of Parsi humor and in Iran, there's a, you know, again, a, a, a distinct type of, of, of joy that is conveyed in the culture. Uh, so that's something that, again, we can trace back to quite a long period of time. Uh, so with that, I would like to ask either Shainaz or Noshir, do you, have, do, you have, do you have a question for me? Uh, yes, I do have a question for you, uh, which is linked to the long history of Zoroastrianism and people don't realize it. How is Zoroastrianism influenced and been influenced by other faiths? Yeah, yeah. So again, in any religion that has such a long history uh, has obviously had a, a great degree of influence on on other religious traditions. So uh, you know, I mean, there, you know, scholars of Islam will talk about uh, transmission of a particular Zoroastrian ideas to Islam. Uh, similarly, in Judaism, I, I know that there have been one or two works out recently that have talked about uh, certain, say, ritual uh, practice that, uh, you know, and, and ideas that have been borrowed in Judaism. Uh, and certainly, you know, in the Jewish tradition, Cyrus uh, is regarded as, as being a prophet, as, as, somewhat, as, as, as somewhat of a savior figure. Uh, so you do have some crossover there also. Uh, there are many similarities between Zoroastrianism and, and Hinduism, and, and, and many of these similarities go back to the fact that uh, the origins were probably common. Uh, you know, somewhere in Central Asia, uh, you know, Vedic uh, and Zoroastrian traditions grew up either side by side or interacted with one another. And you can tell this just through the similarity of a lot of words that are, uh, you know, employed in, in both uh, traditions. Um, Christianity, again, you know, I mean, the three Magi are perhaps the best example of how we, you know, Zoroastrianism has uh, had some influence on Christianity. But the, the other side of the coin is something which is uh, not discussed as much. Uh, what have other religions uh, done to influence? Influence Zoroastrianism as well. Uh, and again, you know, religions like Islam have had a very strong influence on Zoroastrian practice as well. I mean, if you look at a lot of the terminology we use, Kebla or Din Lokalmo, uh, you know, these derive from Islamic terms and perhaps certain forms of Zoroastrian practice grew up in reaction or, uh, you know, in some sort of sync to uh, Islam when Islam was introduced to Iran, uh, you know, from, uh, from the uh, 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 the 600s on 600s onwards, uh, and certainly once uh, Parsis come to India, uh, Hinduism uh, exerted a, a great deal of influence uh, on Zoroastrian practice. So I mean, you know, within our wedding traditions, within many of our customs, uh, there is a very strong Hindu influence. And and starting from the 1850s onward, there was an impulse amongst many. Uh, Parsis to, to get rid of this and say this is not authentic. Um, and, you know, I, I really think in many ways that's a mistake. I mean, all religions are to a degree syncretic. Uh, we, there's nothing really like an authentic religion. I mean, when you study religion, that idea of authenticity is one of the first uh, 
shibboleths to, to go away. Uh, so, you know, I think in many ways we should revel, uh, revel in, in these similarities and these crossovers that we have uh, between different uh, particular uh, religious traditions. Do you have a question now, Dinyar? Sure, sure. So um, let me, um, you know, I, I can perhaps ask this to, to uh, you know, to, to both of you, uh, since both of you have, uh, you know, I think similar uh, areas of, of expertise. Uh, are, there, are there, you know, any things you can talk about about symbolism uh, within the faith, whether it's fire, whether it is any other uh, particular traditions? Okay, I'll take off with something and then I think I'll, I'll leave the question about fire. I'll just touch upon it and I'll leave it to Noshe. Uh, basically, the symbols range from the absolute everyday to the most esoteric. I'm going to take as an oral tradition, which is also a tangible tradition, the simplest thing, which I've already mentioned, the Vahumanik Vastra or the simpler way we use the word, the Sadra. Under all our externals, we wear this white muslin shirt with a tiny little one inch square pocket called the Kisse Kerfe or the Gireban which is placed over our heart, which comes over our heart. Uh, it is the garment of the good mind and we tie around our waist, girls and boys, after their initiation on Aujot, we tie around our waist the Kasti. The Kasti is created out of, it's woven out of 72 threads of lamb's wool. It signifies the 72 chapters of the Yashna, which is our most in important and most ancient ritual. But every time we put on the Sadra Kasti in the morning after our bath or we recite the Kasti at night before going to bed, it is a very simple but very important symbolic reminder of the Yashna ceremony. You saw a brief glimpse of that Yashna ceremony. It is a very intricate ceremony. It's a proto-Indo-Iranian ceremony, definitely coming out of Central Asia. But it is our most sacred text and it is our most sacred ritual. Once upon a time, it used to be performed every day by two highly trained priests in the great Athas Behrams across India. In Iran, it, we've lost it for many, many uh, decades, the entire Yashna. We still have it performed at a few places at a few times. Now, what does it start with? It starts with two priests going before dawn, just before dawn to the well, drawing out water, which they then pray over, bless in a place, in a sacred space or teminos, where you have all the seven elements, fire, water, plant, metal, animal, man, and of course the earth. And finally, you recite intricate prayers by heart. You perform very, very uh, important ritual gestures and you bind together the whole of creation before you take that energized water after hours of recitation and pour it back into the well in sunlight. This, this, this act, the Yashna, is to enrich and strengthen creation every day. When you tie your kasti, and this I, I really am aiming at the young Zoroastrians who think it's so unimportant, rituals don't matter. When you tie your kasti or recite your kasti prayers, you are actually enacting the same ritual, which in miniature, using very similar ritual gestures, using very similar words, the avangoya, the tying together. And therefore, I think it's a very important concept and it's a very simple uh, 
apparently simple concept linking into a much deeper symbolism. Fire, I know that Noshir will talk about, but there's one important thing I want to mention. It combines, it purifies, but that word humility which you use for uh, uh, Spendarmad or Spentarmaiti, the ultimate fire in the fire temple, the greatest fire temple will turn to ash. And we put that ash on our forehead to remember that with humility, that all of us, all the fancy things we have, all that we are, this human body turns to dust. I am going to bring about one, talk about one other symbol, which I think needs to be talked about because people, especially in childhood in Gujarat, people used to whisper behind their hands and talk to us about, oh, how do you dispose of your dead? Okay, and that's the Dakma or the Towers of Silence and Sky Burial. Sky Burial is again part of our ecological consciousness. We do not want to waste precious resources. And it is the soul that is important, not the body. So you don't want to waste wood. You do not want to pollute the earth. You do not want to occupy space. And that is why you offer your body as your last good deed to birds of prey. Let them feast on you, on this body, because it's the soul that is the Ruan, which has already chosen the right path and crossed into Garodamana, that beautiful paradise of flowers, song and light. So I think these are the symbols which I just have briefly touched upon. I mean, I can talk for hours about this. So with that, I think Noshir, please do talk about uh, the whole concept of fire and that that use of that term fire worshippers. Thank you, Shanaz. I'll take off from where you have left. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, uh, most people associate Zoroastrianism and Parsis with fire worship. Even uh, the temple at which we, you know, a place of worship is referred to a temple. Uh, uh, the very Sanskritized term is, is about Agni, that this is the place where you are, in a sense, revering fire. So, as a person then, Firdausi in his Shaname speaks about uh, that, do not think that they are worshippers of fire. They are the worshippers of Yazdan, which is God, through the medium of fire. So it, it, it's it's kind of fundamentally wrong to think that fire, uh, Parsis or fire worshippers. It's it's akin to saying that Christians was, worship the cross, or Muslims worship the Kaaba. I mean, these are mediums through which and Zoroastrianism has chosen fire as a medium. As one had once said, through nature we look up to nature as God. It's just not fire. We pray even before the waters in the month of Ava. Uh, we pray before the mountains. There are prayers for every good creation. There is even prayers that you say for the orvar, which is vegetation. So you could be facing the uh, and praying to the forest and of the forest. So essentially, we are worshippers of nature. And through nature, we look up to nature's God, which is Auramas, the creator, benevolent Lord of wisdom. So essentially, why do we consider fire as the icon of worship? Uh, as in, we look at fire as a channel or the medium through which we look up to Ahura Mazda. Because first of all, we see fire as the dispeller of darkness. It's the giver of It's not the them darkness, but it is dispelling. Because whenever we think even in the terms of concept of evil, evil is the absence of good. 
in like manner there is no such thing as darkness it does not have an existence of its own you cannot bring darkness to this room when it is lighted when i will switch off my lights here there'll be darkness but once i switch on the lights darkness has disappeared this is exactly what we think even about evil so fire is the gate and most important it is a way of life it animates you will see that uh, uh just as you find in the book of genesis uh, that god created uh, this world creates creates a sky earth we have a similar concept even in western texts in the bundahishan and we celebrate the six gambars which are the six stages in which auramas the creates this world there is no day of the sabbath there is no rest auramas does, does not seem to have taken a rest day he created the six creations and that was it and how did it animate fire was created i believe that it is fire that animated all the six creations and therefore fire giver of light and it's the giver of life the amesha spenta or the divinity that presides over fire is ardibesh ardibesh is the force so when you're praying before a fire you're asking for that fire energy to energize you and this is what we are asking of that fire and these are mental affirmations that you're making it's uh, i'm so glad that shena spoke about the importance of prayers but it's also that you understand your prayer and you should word for word know the translation but know the essence of what you pray you pray before the ayas atash uh, a litany which we refer to as the atash niyash it's it, it's it's in praise of the fire and we refer as atash ahuram as the putra now this term is taken two ways they took the sanskritized word putra meaning that fire is the son of auramazda but uh, a scholar like uh, kavaji edelji tanga says putra is also meaning a purifier that fire who is the fire he purifies all polluted he purifies your mind he purifies your thinking so actually fire it's not about fire worship it is true fire that we look up to god and so essentially if i am out come down to what it means to be a zoroastrian to live a zoroastrian life it is as shenas rightly said we have a choice we have the choice to choose between right and wrong and good and evil but what is evil or what is not good this pahlavi text speak about evil exists at different levels at the physical level it is in anything that is polluted anything that is unclean so there is the concept of cleanliness is next to godliness is christian cleanliness is godliness anything that is polluted is moving away from what is good at the social level poverty illness want it's a form of evil and that is why you see parsi is being charitable the concept of radhi and rasti are in the pahlavi text radhi is about truth and rasti sorry rasti is about truth and radhi is about being charitable ethical level, have all your vices anger jealousy lust gluttony these are all defined in the pahlavi text at the ethical level that is the evil there is at the metaphysical level the great for a uh, uh, battle between the forces of good and evil and your contribution is through your righteous choices that you make and the prayers that you offer so essentially i'll repeat this and i will conclude with that that essentially consider as evil in a sense does not have an existence of its own evil is merely this of good and by choosing good we diminish evil and this is a beautiful concept that is found in the zamya dyash in the conclusion paragraph where we are making an affirmation that at the end of time 
please understand that this entire universe was created to get rid of Aura Mazda. Oh, uh, sorry, Ariman. to get rid of uh, Ariman is what I meant to say. So I'm, 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 my apologies. And that Yash makes that affirmation that Ariman, that is the evil one, will. It doesn't say Ariman will be vanquished. It doesn't say Ariman because you cannot destroy what does not exist. Ariman will buy a kind of bow out and goodness, that perfection, that fresh authority that we want, the perfect world will prevail. And that's the affirmation we make in the Zamyad Yash, which is to the earth itself. So to the earth, we are saying, yes, ultimately, evil will simply bow out and the in this world. Thank you, Nakshir. Thank you. I'm, thank I'm you. just so, going to, before I ask Dinya to conclude. Very, very quickly, because we, yeah. we actually, we, need, we should take one more, one question before yeah. wrapping up. We only have I'm, about four I'm, minutes no, left. I'm just, I'm just uh, continuing what, uh, uh, what Nakshir said, and that is, we need to understand our text. And I'm going to suggest to people to read uh, Dr. Erich Tarapurwala's uh, translation of the Gathas, which is called the Divine Songs of Zarathustra. It's a beautiful translation and transliteration, and it brings out word for word plus the poetic meaning. And that's a beautiful thing, which I would recommend people to read. And the other one, of course, is Mary Boyce's great book, Zoroastrians, Their Religious Beliefs and Practices. So with that, my side is over. Dinyar, if you'd like to conclude, please go ahead yeah. and talk about the diaspora. So I'm, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to uh, take a, an audience question. So we, we have one question on the historicity of, of the Kisei Sanjat. Uh, so let me explain what this text is first. It, it's, it's a text which uh, dates, I believe, from 1599, uh, which gives the account of uh, how the Parsis came to India, the, the story of Sanjan. They came to this town called Sanjan, which still exists on the Gujarati coast. As to the historicity of it, uh, very good question. I mean, you know, the, the author of, uh, of uh, the Kisei himself talks about how he's received the story from someone else. So it, it probably derived from some sort of uh, oral tradition, um, you know, and, and there, there, there's, there's a certain chronology that's put in place. And this is described quite well. There's a book by Alan Williams, who's a professor in the UK, who's he's written a book on the Kisei Sanjan and done a translation of it. And I'd recommend you take a look at that if you want to learn more. Uh, but, you know, there's certain types of chronology that are built in over here that we stayed, you know, at this place for, you know, 10 years or you know, 100 years, etc., and, and moved on and on. Uh, it's difficult to, to assign precise numerical values, uh, you know, uh, to take that at, at face value rather, right? That, you know, it's 10 years were elapsed in, in a place like Dew or for 100 years, the, you know, the, the two Pirates lived in a place like uh, uh, Hormuz. Um, so what we can, we, we can take it, you know, I, I think the important thing about taking any account like this is, uh, is you know, it gives us a hint of what, uh, uh, the history of the Parsis uh, was like. I mean, yes, there probably was some impulse uh, uh, against religious persecution in Iran. At the same time, we have lots of evidence of migration to India uh, based on networks of commerce uh, and mercantile networks. I mean, that's precisely how we get uh, the first sign of Zoroastrianism, uh, you know, appearing in uh, in India and in Kerala, uh, you know, in, in in the ninth century. Uh, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Archaeological evidence uh, will will fill in a lot of the details. Uh, you know, additionally, to, to kind of reconstruct the story. Um, so with that, you know, we, we are pretty much out of time. So I, I, I want to, to wrap up and uh, thank everyone for participating uh, in this particular session and, and thank uh, both JLF and, and Teamworks for uh, allowing all three of us to participate in this discussion. Uh, you know, if you want to learn more about Zoroastrianism, there's some great books, which 
Shen has mentioned, and uh, you know many others that are available uh, for uh, for consultation. And we really encourage you to to, to study up more. So it's a fascinating religion to to learn about. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please subscribe or follow the show wherever you're listening to this to stay updated on new episodes. Mm-hmm.